you can't make alcohol above a certain proof, but there's no one telling you you can't, you know, have as many shots as you'd like, right? I mean, you can't technically serve someone who's inebriated in a bar. So, I mean, you know, these kind of things are going to come up. You know, there's an interesting question the other day actually came up, said, well, what about an on-premise consumption lounge? What's going to happen for a bud tender? Are they going to have to get certified to say, okay, you're too high? This is the Empire State of Cannabis. Welcome to another episode of Empire State of Cannabis. Today, we got a very special guest, Ron Silver. He's a world-renowned chef, owner of Bubby's Restaurant in Manhattan, founder and chief creative officer of Azuka. Ron, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So today, we're going to talk all about edibles. We're going to talk about edibles, what edibles are, what it means in the CBD hemp extract space, also what it means in the adult use space and what it's going to mean in New York. So, Ron, why don't you give us a little background uh, about yourself and and what Azuka is all about? So, uh, I have been a chef. You know, I've been working in kitchens all my life, but I've owned Bubby's in New York, and we have a bunch of restaurants in Japan also uh, since 1990. So, this is our 30th anniversary. And uh, I... You know, since I've been in restaurants and in kitchens all my life, uh, I've also, you know, I've also really used cannabis uh, yeah. all, all my life. And uh, at a certain point, I, uh, well, maybe seven or eight years ago when there was going to be something like a cannabis industry, uh, you know, I started sort of talking to people who were busy exploring what that looked like. And uh, um, I sort of understood the biggest problem to be a low dose, controllable edible. Hmm. Uh, And that that problem, whoever solved that problem was really going to be solving the biggest problem in uh, cannabis edibles, which really, um, you know, really since the beginning, um, you know, we, I've assumed it was going to be at least half of the, uh, cannabis consumption, whether it's Mm. CBD or THC, uh, you know, just an an enormous amount of people, especially people who have never used cannabis, I think, uh, have an aversion to smoking. And especially for elderly patients and people who really have the most benefits, elderly women, for example, uh, a controllable dose is the key to being able to uh, both take it and enjoy it and also take it and have it be an effective, useful medicine. So so really ever since, uh, you know, this is the thing that I've been focused on from day one. Um, and it, you know, the, I can go into what the problems are in edibles, but you know, the, the solutions that, that, uh, that we've been able to come up with both the, the present ones that we're in the market with, uh, and our other innovations that we're going to be coming out with are, you know, each one is sort of more, you know, industry setting than the next in a way well i think it's interesting though when you talk about you know it some canvas consumers they're having aversion to flour and so but also kind of what i'm hearing though is 
edibles expand the market and expand the total addressable market, right? Because if you're a classic cannabis consumer, flour is kind of that classic. I mean, you know everything about flour. So I feel like it's, it's, all, it's doing two things, right? I mean, it's kind of expanding for a regular cannabis consumer, you know, what, uh, you know, ways to use cannabis, right? So maybe edibles is part of a routine. Maybe that's your weekend routine as compared to your weekday or whatever, right? But what you're saying is almost like you're thinking it's expanding the potential market, the total addressable potential market for cannabis to people that really don't want to smoke something, right? Well, yes. And there, there are an enormous amount of people who, uh, you know, for example, people who are, you know, undergoing chemotherapy or mm. post-surgery or really elderly women uh, mm. face a huge amount of challenges. Uh, and a lot of the current medical solution is to just dish out opioids, whereas the cannabis actually is a lot more effective uh, and causes many less problems or, or really no problems. So, uh, and, you know, just for example, in New York, uh, New York State really, you know, since they're the last ones on the bus, they want to yeah. be the best ones on the bus. And the... The idea of a consumption lounge is really addressed by a controllable dose edible, something that you can have a drink or a, an edible snack that's two or three milligrams so that you know really how much you're having and that you can have a, a few of them. And be fine. We can't smoke anything inside anyways, though. You know well, what I mean? You know, that, that's a discussion. Um, you know, I personally feel that a cannabis lounge without smoking is just dumb. It's boring. I don't think it's going to happen. But they can have, certainly have a smoking area and a non-smoking area yeah. and uh, stuff like that. But there are many things to flesh out for real. Yeah. And, you know, sort of, I, I personally feel that pandering to the sort of loud and yet small crowd is not going to be the way to go. Just don't yeah. go there if you don't like smoke. Yeah. Smoke yeah, exactly. I, so that'll be interesting. I mean, I think what you'll probably end up having is some sort of concession where, yeah, you have a non-smoking area, but probably like an outside or like semi-outside area for smoking, you know. Um, but the, the, that's interesting because you're saying like, you know, with edibles, you can control the dose a lot, a lot better, right? So no, with, with not with traditional edibles, but mm. with, with a program that allows you to control the dose, which is something that we have. Uh, yeah, because most people, they're going to say, well, my experience is I ate a brownie and I was gone for two days. Right? I hear that all the time. Edibles made me stop consuming cannabis. And it's like, well, you had a bad edible. But I mean, wh what are some of the, I mean, you, from a scientific perspective, from a formulation perspective, why is that? Well, it really is about uh, the nature of oil and cannabis oil, and really, if you've ever seen it, and most of, you know, if you've ever seen what's in a vape pen, that's basically cannabis oil, and that is what they make edibles with. Mm. Um, so that oil is obviously, if you put it, poured that into a glass of water, it would float on top and it would blob. And so when it goes into your body, it's also in a little glob. And those, those molecules really stick together. So each individual cannabis molecule is 1.5 nanometers. And they're, you know, so most edibles companies just take 
some sort of cannabis extract, whether it's oil or keef or whatever, and put it into their, say, gummy bear. Hmm. And so when that goes into your body, it's in various sizes of globules that have to go into your liver to be processed. And depending on liver function, that could take anywhere from one to four hours to get anywhere from two to 6%. So there is another technology called nanolipid technology, uh, which is sort of uh, an emulsification program that will get a smaller uh, particle size or a more controlled particle size. And that could be anywhere from say 100 to 1,000 nanometers or you know, say 800 molecules big. And with that, there's a lot of variability. One of the, one of the variables is that if you have a tight emulsification, you, it is, you can't put a lot of medicine in there. Um, and it also doesn't taste that good. And if you have more medicine in there, it has, uh, it has a sort of not a very good, uh, taste and it also uh, loses a lot of shelf stability hmm. so there are many many problems involved with how to get the cannabis into the gummy bear and a lot of the problems involve waste in manufacturing waste in uh, shelf returns from things falling apart on the shelf through temperature fluctuations that make the emulsification fall apart uh, and then from the consumer side, a, a sort of uh, unpredictable experience. And yeah. so what Azuka has is something called time infusion, which is a thermodynamic individual molecular encapsulation. And that, our encapsulation wraps one molecule at a time. It only works on a singular molecular basis. Hmm. And so there's a few things about it is that because it's not an emulsification, it's a thermodynamic bond. So because of the nature of that bonding setup, it has a lot more flexibility of temperature. So it can go up to really 300 degrees or down to 50 below zero and still maintain its bond. So that so on the shelf return for, you know, for manufacturers, that's helpful. It also cuts manufacturing waste by almost 100%. And for the consumer, it makes it so they can decide almost to the milligram how much they want to consume. Well, I th so that raises an interesting question, almost like a conundrum for regulators, though, right? Because if you have a product that is utilizing technology that you're talking about, right, you're going to have a lot more exact dosing. So 20 milligram product that Azuka makes is going to be consequentially different in terms of the consumer experience than 20 milligrams of another product. So when yeah. we're talking about it from a regulatory perspective, when we look at New York, they just rolled out all CBD, you know, our hemp extract cannabinoid products that have food or drinks can be up to 25 milligrams per unit. But a 25 milligram per unit product that does not take into account some of these issues that you're talking about much different than a 25 milligram product, say that, uh, utilize some of the technology you just described. So from a regulator perspective, 
what is that? I mean, I'm trying to think, what, what is that? What does that really mean? I mean, can you require some I mean, sort of, I don't know. You know. To me, it's the difference between a dial-up internet and a broadband internet. Yeah. Or it's also the difference between having a car with a seatbelt or not having a seatbelt. Mm. Uh, and it's also the difference just between having an actual solution in hand because the industry right now does not have, it's not aware of this solution. Uh, you know, although we're, we are getting out into the marketplace now and, you know, for example, with our main, our, our first uh, customer, WANA, um, you know, we, I don't know if I'm allowed to say exactly what it was, but the amount of sales that we did with them last yeah. year uh, or represented for them is enormous. And we, we really ended up doing, uh, you know, accounting for like 30 some percent of their gummy sales. Um, and, and it really was sort of additive rather than sort of capitalizing on their other. It's just because people had a better experience with those products and they came back and bought them again, basically. I mean, that's, that's yeah, everything. So of, you know, and that's, in a, we launched at the beginning of the pandemic. And so we really didn't have a chance to market this stuff. It was really yeah. word of mouth and it really does work. So as people, as consumers and manufacturers aware of an actual solution uh you know that then it becomes from a regulator standpoint there you can't insist on something that's not possible yeah so this just makes it possible and i think that there will be a lot of competition going towards this way as it develops but well, do you think there should be a cap at all on milligrams of, of cannabinoids in a, in a single product or a single dose um, and, I mean, how do you, how do you even come up with that cap? Right. So would you say, okay, this is how many, I mean, 25 milligrams almost seems super arbitrary. Right. And then in Colorado, what it's a hundred milligrams for an edible product, you know, if or THC. well, I guess that's an interesting question because either one, right. And obviously THC is psychoactive. CBD isn't, you have these other cannabinoids. So do you create different rules for different cannabinoids or do you just draw the line at psychoactive and non-psychoactive? Well, I mean, I think part of the answer in my mind, of, uh, part of the answer is that the regulations have not permitted a lot of research. And so everybody's mm. flying by the seat of their pants. Um, so it will be interesting to understand what that means. I feel like a 25 milligram dose of CBD is, you know, a decent average dose, but I really have no idea. I just know from anecdotal evidence that it yeah. does have an effect on people. And so, and that does seem to be a decent dose for a lot of things, but I really don't know. And it's person to person. I mean, it, I guess when you look at THC now, you can, there's a decent comp to alcohol, not a good comparison, but there's a somewhat of a comparison to alcohol, right? So you can't make alcohol above a certain proof, but there's no one telling you you can't, you know, have as many shots as you'd like, right? I mean, you can't technically serve someone who's inebriated in a bar. So, I mean, you know, these kind of things are going to come up. You know, there's an interesting question the other day actually came up, said, well, what about an on-premise consumption lounge? What's going to happen for a bud tender? Are they going to have to get certified to say, okay, you're too high 
you know, you're not able to be served? Are they going to put some caps on the amount of, you know, product that can be served to a person? And, you know, at what point do we just say, well, different people are looking for different things? I mean, this is interesting, the intersection of science, research, and cannabis. I mean, you know, um, when I was, uh, when I was in high school, I worked as a dishwasher, right? And I mean, listen, there's nothing, everyone in the kitchen smokes pot. That's just what happens, right? Are these people in the kitchen smoking pot necessarily because they're trying to get an exact meter dose, et cetera? For me as a dishwasher, I was trying to get as high as I can before I can't do my job anymore so I can forget about the fact that I'm washing dishes all night long. You know what I mean? So so it's 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 per person. It's it's completely different. And so I it's it's a tough job for regulators at all. And I wonder if honestly, you know, when we look at New York, the regulators, I don't think it's gonna happen, but maybe they should take a step back let the kind of market evolve a little bit. And if there's a problem, address it instead of, you know, trying to be proactive about addressing problems that don't really exist. I mean, no one's ever over overdosed on THC to my knowledge. It does seem, uh, it does seem like the kind of thing that has an automatic regulation in it all, all by itself. Nobody's ever died from it. And, I don't know how many bong hits somebody can take before they sort of threw up or sort of coughed themselves to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I just, you know, of course, the one of the problems really is uh, if somebody eats too many edibles and it is a bad feeling. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess the worst that we're talking about is somebody having a bad feeling. Yeah. Uh, well, what do we have Maureen Dodd? I mean, the famous story of Maureen Dowd, right, from the New York yeah. Times. You know, I'm talking about where she went to Colorado and she described her experience and it was one of the most ridiculous things. I mean, it's, yeah, it's harried. She entire candy bar that was like 100 milligrams or something. Yeah, yeah. And and so, I mean, I, there's something where you just can't replace consumer education, right? I mean, well, at what point does he say a regulator? I mean, you just got to be sensible about things. I mean, but that's part of the problem. And so you bring this up, this kind of quick acting, fast acting is that you can eat an edible. It doesn't kick in. Well, after you ate an edible, maybe you smoked, a, you know, took a couple hits off a joint and maybe took a dab. Maybe you had another edible. And then all of a sudden it kicks in and you're you're in another world. But what are really the consequences of that? I mean, listen, you know, we basically let adults figure out their tolerance for alcohol. I was just we, say, you know, nobody ever, when they legalized alcohol after prohibition, it was like, you know, the confetti went up. And, you know, I'm sure there were many people, you know, throwing up in the street. Yeah. And, you know, up until, you know, I mean, up until the 70s, they encouraged people to drink and smoke at the same time while they were driving. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and that's the thing, like everyone has that story about when they were in college or when they're in high school, when they were younger. Oh, you know, I, uh, you know, drank half a bottle of, of UV vodka. Right. And I'll never do that again. Okay. Well, and so now they find their, you know, so that's the thing with it, with cannabis. I mean, we talk about legalizing for adult use at a certain point, we got to just treat people like adults and say, okay, figure it, you know, figure it out. I mean, obviously you don't want operators kind of taking advantage and overcharging, but listen, I mean, the thing about it is, is there has to be a way, a lot of the regulation is a way to generate revenues Yeah. and for whatever it's worth. And I mean, I am kind of a dork uh, or a geek or whatever you want to say, but in 1842, Abraham Lincoln gave a speech that's, you know, uh, 18 years before he was president about 
prohibition. It is a long, long speech. It's like 40 pages long hmm. about how any prohibition is a tax on the poor. Mm. Yep. Because everybody else can just do whatever they want. And it's just straight up tax on the poor. And in, in this case, it was a regulation or a law. You know, it has turned into not only a tax on the poor, but also a way of generating slave labor in the prison system by having a regulation that really is only applied to a very small group of people. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's the crazy thing. I mean, interestingly enough, you look at legalization in New York, and I think a new poll came out, it was like 66% of New Yorkers support legalization. But you look at the suburbs, you look at Westchester and Long Island, and that support is you, it's kind of minority. It's like 48%, 45%, right? And my quick reaction to that is, well, they have no problem getting pot. And they're never going to get arrested for smoking cannabis in Westchester and Long Island. A lot of these voters, right? They're never going to get arrested. I mean, obviously, there's there's parts of Westchester and Long Island that is, you know, problem areas in terms of enforcement and uh, disadvantaged communities. But a lot of these voters, a lot of these, you know, middle class, uh, you know, upper middle class, upper class. Yeah, they don't want dispensaries in their neighborhood. Yeah, they don't want a dispensary. Well, they're scared. Listen, it's fear mongering. They don't want a dispensary in the neighborhood because they don't have a dispensary in the neighborhood and they don't realize how benign that is. They don't mind having a liquor store in the neighborhood because it's convenience, right? So I, I think it's really, it's, it's fear mongering. I mean, when you look at what the, the PTA does and what some of these, you know, um, you know, law enforcement organizations come out with, it's just ridiculous. I mean, smart approaches to marijuana, right? I mean, they, listen, they, they've lost their arguments in almost every state. They're doubling down here in New York and it's like, oh, you know, everyone should be scared because the use is going to increase. Everyone's going to be on the road high as if they aren't already, you know, and, and all these things are going to happen. Country. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, the, the other thing is that the, the, the state and the city and the Fed, they all need the tax revenues. I mean, there's yeah. no and to spend the money on enforcement rather than generating revenues through taxes. It's just dumb, especially when, especially in New York, city i believe that the cannabis consumption per capita is more than anywhere in the united states it is no absolutely it's and it's going to be well so, so let's talk about that so let's assume cuomo and the legislature get their shit together it's past april 1st we see some sort of marketplace set up by 2022 i've always said you know don't make a comparison to any other place because New York, first off, we already have a thriving cannabis industry. We made cannabis cool here in New York, right? I mean, honestly, and it's going to look so much different. And I think what's, what's really interesting is the culture around food. I mean, let's, there, it's an open secret that if you want to have a good time on a Friday, Saturday night, maybe before COVID, right, you go and get tickets to an infused dinner, right? And so- what does that really look? I mean, what do you think that looks like? I mean, you're down, I know your restaurant is down in Soho, right? You know, pretty lively place. But what does that look like in Soho, the LES, you know, whatever these cool spots and, you know, parks, cool spots in New York City in terms of cannabis? I mean, it, do you think food it has a big role in that? Well, I think so. it's a very interesting question. So we're in Tribeca and one of, one of the very, you know, I think interesting things that's come out of this COVID situation is the outside cafe life that has emerged. And I don't think that's going to go away. No. So uh, in other words, we have tables out into the street and, you know, where, you know, we did not have that before. So 
and, and everybody has it. So there is a cafe lifestyle that did not exist before. And at the moment, we're still in the middle of this pandemic and it's worse than ever, yeah. but there's a vaccine and there seems to be some solutions coming along with some more sane or some sane period leadership. Yeah. And so it seems like we could be sailing into a moment where in New York City, we have a brand new cafe culture with a different way of approaching food and beverage. And I could go into that all day long. Interesting. But one of the things that I will say is that the New York City Health Department, their number one job is not to make sure that things are healthy, but to generate revenue for the city. Mm. So the, the thing that that does is it makes a whole bunch of stupid laws that make it so you can't do things that they do in other places like Paris or Spain or, you know, or, you know, Barcelona, or, you know, what I'm, I'm saying, you know, like little grilled street foods or yeah. bees sitting out or hams hanging up or a million things that you might be able to do or grill some stuff outside. So I think that we're in for a more, um, I guess, uh, I want to say it's sort of a more hospitality oriented street life. Yeah. And, you know, I personally, and at the moment you could really buy cocktails and be walking around with it. I would like to see just a sort of, you know, I mean, I personally would rather sell forms of cannabis at my bar than alcohol any day. I would, yeah. for, I would forego all alcohol sales. Wow. That's interesting. To, yeah. to sell cannabis stuff. And, you know, I, I don't like alcohol. I find it to be destructive. Yeah. Uh, but it's been, nor it's been so normalized. You know what yeah, I mean? So I, don't, like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want, I'm, I'm not like trying to sort of yeah, yeah. prohibit alcohol. I'm just saying for me personally, if I had to choose between the two, uh, I, I would choose to, to sell weed yeah. all day long because yeah. it's just more friendly. And, and, and it's a lot easier. So you're saying basically, I mean, if instead of, well, what happens, right? So the waiter comes to your table and says, uh, are you drink? you know, would you like a drink? Are you drinking tonight? Right. So you get a drink, you order your apps, you order your food. Well, maybe it's, you know, oh, are you, are you consuming cannabis tonight? So that could be a THC beverage, that could be THC food, or, or if we're talking about it, I mean, if, if the outside environment stays, which I think is interesting you say that because people, I mean, rooftop bars and lounges were taking off before the pandemic. People wanted to be outside. Now we know people want to be outside. People have to be outside. And so if New York City continues to allow this, which they absolutely should and allows this kind of, you know, hang out outside why not why not bring a joint to the table as you look over the menu right and beyond the economic benefits of you know increased appetite at a restaurant um you're probably going to get more of a longer experience more engaged experience from the customer uh at that at that place you know well i i i, I think that there is at the moment, a more, uh, there's a, a slowed down mentality in the restaurant in general. Like people are accustomed at this very moment of, in time to 
waiting longer for their stuff to come out because things are just running in a wonky way. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say that the whole slowing down is conducive also to cannabis yeah. and to sort of just opening up the thinking from this sort of fake uh, Puritan point of view that really is just fraught with all kinds of, you know, a lot of the valid, you know, a lot of the social justice stuff, I really do feel that that stuff needs to be represented in these regulations. Uh, and, and especially, you know, a expunging and getting rid of all of these records, but creating opportunities for people. God, well, that the, the opportunities thing is important because I say this all the time, you know, when tax revenues are or whatever, you can bring tax revenues, you know, we've been spending money on, you know, certain, uh, you know, trying to remedy harms in these communities for years. What we need to do is create pathways for ownership to create wealth, right? And I think the way to do that, open it up. If you're in New York State, you want serious tax revenue, open it up. Allow people to apply for it. Listen, there's no competitive nature to getting an alcohol license. Yet we don't have people going, oh, we don't, you know, we have too much alcohol. You let the market settle it, right? You let people get a license. Let people get a license for on-premise consumption, for retail, for cultivation, and let the market do its job. I mean, if any place well, is ripe to do that, it's New York. Honestly, I also feel that that if that were the environment, I feel that let's say that all this, all the laws and stigmas are gone. I feel that New York could really uh, uh, innovate on cannabis. I mean, yeah. what we're doing is innovative and, and, you know, I'm not that smart. There's a lot of smarter people than, than, than I am out there to figure out all the different problems. And some of those problems have to do with accounting and legal and inventory control and distribution and, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. So yeah. all kinds of stuff. there's just, you know, an entire industry to flesh out and to figure out and, yeah. and, and you know, just all the dry details of the business. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I say this all the time I and mean, you're not going to find a more innovative population than, you know, the 20 square miles or so of New York city. Right. I mean, and New York in general, I mean, people forget upstate New York. I mean, we still have that New Yorker flavor. We're just a little slower with things. Right. But you know, we still have that mindset up here in upstate New York all throughout New York state. So, I mean, listen, I, well, New York there's state, plenty of good agricultural land up there. There's a lot of things to do up there. Well, I'll tell you, there's good cannabis growers up here too. And they've been growing cannabis for decades. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Yeah, I smoked I, a lot of it. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, either way you have entrepreneurs and this is the thing. I mean, you know, I don't care what any MSO, what any large CEO, private equity backed company is going to come in and say, and that, well, we need responsible operators. I come from the CPG industry or whatever. Yeah. There's responsible entrepreneurs. It's just that we told them there have been illegal and they've been doing illegal things for the past 30 years. And so they've been innovating, getting around the law, but still running a business. They're running a business. They're entrepreneurs. Bring those people, allow them to get licenses. It's a no brainer in my opinion. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. I do think that there needs to be a level of professionalism in the cannabis industry because there are a lot of things. Uh, for example, uh, laboratories uh, and the sort of safety of um, making sure that there are no pesticides and fungus and mold and all of that stuff. Yeah. 
so so I think that and that and that brings up uh, sort of responsible growing and there's a lot of waste involved with with growing yeah. and there's a lot of chemicals and as far as fertilizers and so there are definitely things that need to be regulated and considered and yeah. it is capital intensive and it's not an easy thing and so one of the things also that i think uh, to your point about creating opportunity is that uh one of the cheapest uh assets in the world as the industry is emerging is mentorship yeah you know that that's free yeah so basically it seems like there could be the intention of, uh, you know, sort of leadership slash mentorship slash uh, building a, a sort of a, an interesting industry that is not just about being cutthroat, but about being yeah. also about being helpful. Uh, I mean, I don't like cutthroat at all, personally. Yeah. Um, although I do... I do like to innovate the coolest thing possible. Yeah. Like that. Well, I think, I think the state could have a role in that too, because you know, I, I think that the conversation gets lost when we talk about, when the state talks about revenues, I think that the greatest potential for tax revenue is not in the tax on cannabis at the point of sale, but it's the payroll taxes and it's all the other revenue that's going to be generated by having a thriving industry. Right. I think that eventually dwarfs whatever sales revenue, you know, uh, tax on point of sale. So if, if the state was smart, when we talk about reinvestment, they should reinvest in education, helping entrepreneurs, this mentorship. You know, we talk about incubators. It's kind of a broad concept, but, you know, uh, low interest or no interest loans, waiving some of the fees to apply, making it easier. Right. Because like you said, you, you got to have the regulations. You have to have the guide rails. Right. And you have those and those are inherently expensive. But what you don't need is you don't need a hundred thousand dollar license fee. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or not for everyone, at least. And you, and, and you can give some tax breaks here and there. If New York looks at this as a longer term way, just like they did with craft beverage, right? Uh, uh, craft alcohol beverage. You look at this five, 10 years down the line. Well, if you have a thousand businesses that are licensees being supported by another 5,000 businesses, helping them run their business, supported by tens and tens of thousands of employees. Well, the economic benefit and the tax benefit there is pretty substantial. It's more than a billion dollars. That's for sure. Well, I agree with that. And then, and they can also bang it at the point of sale too. Yep. So they get a cherry on top and all of yep. that stuff is right. And the better job we do, the more interesting it's going to be. And the more sort of interesting they make it, the more people will come here to do it. And yeah. you know, I, I do think that there's synergy in, uh, in, you know, the, in these conversations and trying to really, um, forge a business that has integrity and is a sort of representative of a new uh you know a new era with that, that it seems like we're going to be going into yeah absolutely well hey ron th thanks so much for joining the conversation how can the viewers how can uh people listen how can they find you what is it linkedin website facebook uh, I, I i have a linkedin page ron silver or azuka and we have a website azuka.co Azuka.co. Okay, cool. Uh, Instagram. Wake people check check you out on Instagram. I think we have an Instagram. Yeah, Azuka. Cool. 
And I can still book reservations at Bubby's, right? You guys are still going strong. So excellent. All right, cool. Well, check Ron out. Fascinating conversation. We're going to be hearing from you again, Ron. And uh, this is going to be fun in New York. And I look forward to visiting your restaurant. And I can uh, order a joint. I can order some food. I can order a beverage, whatever I can order. Let me know when you're coming down. We can feed you and then we'll take a walk. uh... Excellent. I love it. All right, Ron. 